Well, good morning, Cedar Home. Nice to see you all here. We have some announcements that we'd like to make before we begin with the uh, looking at Scripture today. The first is just to remind you that next Sunday, the 28th at 5 p.m., is our annual meeting here in this room. And one of the things that we will be doing is we will be voting on a proposal that the elders have made that Mitch Klein become the interim pastor of Cedar Home. Uh, Mitch was the pastor here for 26 years, I believe, from 86 until 2012, and then he has since then been interim pastor in at least four different places. And so we felt that this was a great opportunity for us to take advantage of someone that we know very well, but that has guided a number of churches through this process that we are finding ourselves in of looking for a pastor. And so that vote will occur at the annual meeting at 5 p.m. on Sunday the 28th. I'd also like to remind you that the first of March, the day after our annual meeting, is the day that we have been setting aside as a day of prayer for our congregation. Uh, Our attempt is to cover the entire clock, have somebody praying 24 hours. And that isn't so much the goal as it is to just acknowledge that all that we are doing, all that we are experiencing is impacted by our opportunities to pray and ask God to be a part of what we're doing. And so that's the goal behind that day. And if you're interested in participating and have not yet signed up for a time, there is a a chart just outside the doors to the north. (laughs) And you could sign up there. Well, these past few months that Cedar Home has been without a pastor, you, congregation, both here, in person, and online, interesting how you look up when when you talk about the online setting because the camera is right there. Hmm. Anyway, you have been so gracious to allow this pulpit to be filled by uh, a series of preachers. And what's been so interesting is the wide and varied places that we have been as each of those speakers have been moved on a variety of topics. Now, you might be aware that I have been tracing the life of Moses. I've been doing this for a couple of years now. So we've looked into his early life in Egypt. We have fled with him across the wilderness and stood with him in front of a bush that was burning and yet was not consumed. We saw his fear and his uncertainty upon hearing the call of God on his life at the age of 80 to go back to Egypt and to get his people free. Then we observed his confrontation with Pharaoh when he declared, let my people go. And we saw how each plague that happened, of the 10 plagues, they attacked some facet of the religion of Egypt and culminated in what we now know as Passover. If you remember, we also saw how totally unprepared Israel was for this process. In fact, there is a verse in early Exodus that says they made no provisions for themselves. 
And essentially what they, what they did when they left is they plundered the Egyptians. Almost everything they had was given to them by the Egyptians as they, as they left. Kind of as a good riddance, here, have some stuff. Now, you remember that I compared that to me telling you that we as a congregation now are about to stand up and walk to Hagen's and asked you to think about how you would feel about that if I truly was going to make you do that. That some of you might say, well, you just go ahead. You can't make me do that. Well, then we saw the mighty hand of God at work. He, he led them to a place between the sea and the Egyptian army. He led them there. And what seemed impossible turns into a path made in the sea with the waters heaped up on either side and the ground dry. And the people of Israel walk through the sea. There's a pillar of cloud holding back the Egyptian army. And when that cloud disappears, Pharaoh orders his army to go into the sea to get back their slaves. And we saw a presentation of the old movie, The Ten Commandments, that showed the water roaring back and covering the Egyptian army. And now the congregation is following Moses. He's taking them to the mountain of God called Sinai. But as you would expect, they begin to encounter some problems. The first one is a lack of water. And wouldn't you know it, they come to an oasis, the first person tries to drink it and it's not good. It's brackish. It is, it's, it's going to make you ill if you try to drink it. And the people cry out, and God directs Moses to throw a tree into the water, and then the water is sweet to drink. A miracle. So that's where we are in our story today. And so let's pick it up in Exodus chapter 16. We'll be reading the entire chapter. It's kind of long, but we're going to read that entire chapter. And I'm reading out of the ESV, the English Standard Version. And you should be able to see it on the wall behind me. For those of you that are a little unfamiliar with the Bible, Exodus is the second book in from the beginning. So we have Genesis, then Exodus. And so we're in Exodus 16. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them 
whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard, your, heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each of you, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. 
Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is, the, is a Sabbath, there, sh- there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. That was a long one. Well, let me ask you a question. Why are you here today? Why are you joining us on the internet? I hope that your answer involves in some way that you are interested in growing your faith. Now, gaining knowledge about the Bible and the Bible stories is an admirable thing and it has a lot of worth, but it's not our primary focus as a church. No, we are here together to hear God's word. And it says in Romans 10, verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Why was Israel in the wilderness? Well, the short answer is is that God had a plan for them. He was going to make a nation of them for his own. But they seem particularly dense, don't they? really slow to figure things out, to get what's going on. Well, there are times when I feel like we are pretty hard on those people. We shake our heads and wonder why they just don't see. But here's some things to consider that might help you understand a little bit about what these people are facing. The first thing is that while they are Abraham's descendants, they don't seem to have any real connection to him anymore. They don't mention his name very often. They don't seem to focus on the things that were a part of his life. And that's really interesting to me because they are the very fulfillment of the promise that God made to a 90-year-old man who was childish by, childless by the way, not childish, childless, (laughs) was a promise that he made to that 90-year-old man who didn't have any children that he would be the father of, of many nations. 
So they are the actual fulfillment of that promise. But that doesn't seem to connect with them. These people have also been slaves up until just a few weeks ago. Maybe like between now and New Year's. That's all the time that they have had to be free. And when they were slaves, they had no control over their lives. Their focus was what made the master happy. If you didn't make the master happy, you suffered the consequences. If you read in the early part of Exodus, it says that they were ruthlessly enslaved. Not just sort of a slave. It says the Egyptians were ruthless in their desire and in their action to make them slaves. And it was their crying out in this oppressive state that God sent Moses to set them free. I think also they've been in, Is in Egypt now for 430 years. And so really, the only religion that they really know or have seen is the religion of Egypt. They may have had some customs that they observed that they brought down with them when they came out of Canaan. But really, they are focused on the, the Egyptian ideas of gods. And so the, the gods are local. They are gods of specific geographic features. So there's a god of the Nile. There's a god of the desert. There's a god of the sun. There's a god for just about everything. And in the confrontation that they had with Pharaoh, we see that Pharaoh had absolutely no regard for the god of slaves. Why should I listen to him? He's the God of slaves. That's, that's no great thing. How, how can I, as Pharaoh, listen to that kind of a God? And so it took the plagues to get him to listen. And he finally began to realize that this was no ordinary God. It was very powerful. And then we also saw that there is a vast multitude of them the passage that we get that from says that there were 600,000 fighting men. And then we say to ourselves, okay, well, if every one of those were married, then that would be 1.2 million. And if every one of those had at least just one child, then that's 1.8 million. And then if any of their moms and dads are still alive, you can see that two and a half million is not a stretch. But that's the number I have settled on just for discussion purposes. And if you want to engage me in an argument about less or more, go ahead. So anyway, here they are. They're out in the desert. They have just set out from the oasis of Elim. They, they came across that after they had that conf the, the problem with the water where Moses threw the tree in and then they came to an oasis that had 70 palm trees. Although how 70 palm trees could shade two and a half million people, I don't know. But at one point they eventually set out and it says they are between this oasis of Elim on their way to Mount Sinai where Moses is leading them. 
And they find themselves a three-day journey and they are in the heart of the wilderness. Now, when I say the wilderness is a barren place, I don't think that you and I truly understand what a barren place looks like. When you live in that part of the world, there is, in the wilderness, almost no water. We live in a part of the world where water is abundant. In fact, some say way too abundant. And they're hungry. And there's no wonder because they have been walking in this wilderness, hungry with no food or even the possibility of food in sight. And what tends to happen to people when they are facing that kind of stress? They begin to grumble. And ultimately, this gets into the ears of Moses. And here's what they say. I'm going to embellish it a little bit. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt at the hand of the Lord. When we ate meat to the full and had bread until we couldn't take it anymore. I'd like you to try and find in Exodus any place where it talks about there being a meat pot, except right here. And who would have slaves that laid around and ate bread to the full? This sounds an awful lot like when your grandparents would tell you that they walked backwards in the snow barefoot both ways. Oh, uphill too. Things were so much better when I was a kid. Have you ever said that? Have you ever heard that? That's kind of what they're doing. But their hunger is so in their face that they can't see. Now, don't forget, very, very few of us have ever faced this kind of a situation. We may have had some scant meals from time to time. In fact, some of my kids can't stand canned carrots. But we have never faced the prospect of having no food to be found anywhere. So for them, this is not a pretend problem. It's very real. But this is where faith comes in. Because faith enables you to change your perspective. Faith takes an honest look around, but comes up with a different conclusion. Hebrews 11.1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This kind of faith isn't a vague hope that's grounded in imaginary and wishful thinking. Instead, it is confidence that what I see, what I touch, and what I handle isn't the final word. It isn't the defining reality in which I live. This faith is not faith in ourselves or our own abilities. In fact, far from it. Our faith is in God. Our faith is in the one who revealed himself to us in his word and in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Since God is the one in whom we place our faith, then we can approach life with faith in him that when it looks bad, when it seems hopeless, he is there. But Israel as a people has so little experience with this. They have had one just a few weeks ago. They stood between the sea and the Egyptians and then the sea opened and they walked through. And in chapter 15, just one chapter before this, there's a song and a dance. They're they're exulting. And three days of walking in the wilderness has changed it. There's nothing but rock and sand and wind. There's no Hagen's. There's no QFC. There's no bargain market. And there's at least two and a half million of them wandering in this state. So this is the context of God's response to them that we see in verse eight of chapter 16. When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full. Now can you imagine hearing this? What? Meat this evening? Like in a few hours? and bread tomorrow until I'm full? (laughs) What kind of crazy talk is that? There's a great parallel to this, by the way, in Acts chapter 12. It's when Peter was captured and taken prisoner by Herod and put in prison and with the intent that he was going to execute him in the morning. And so the church gathered together in an emergency prayer meeting and they began to fervently pray for Peter's release. While they were praying, an angel comes to the prison and sets Peter free. While they are praying, Peter comes and knocks on the door. And the woman named Rhoda runs to the door and answers the door and Peter goes, hey, it's me. And she runs back to the prayer meeting and says, Peter is at the door. And what is their response? It isn't hallelujah. It isn't God be praised. It's you're out of your mind. Or maybe it's his ghost. We're just like them. Well, back to Exodus. There's an important detail in this passage that we overlook. And it's in verse 10. Aaron has called the whole congregation together to tell them about this impending meat and bread. And while he is speaking, the passage says the whole congregation turns to the wilderness. Now, the ESV and a large number of other uh, translations translated it that they looked to the wilderness. And that verb for turning and looking is, involves all of those, but, th- but it does carry with it the idea of actually turning to look into the wilderness. And so it says that while they were standing there and he was telling them about this impending br- meat and bread, that the whole congregation turned and looked into the wilderness, that place of emptiness, that place where there was nothing. And there they see the cloud and the glory of the Lord.
What is the wilderness that you face today? We all have them. We all have those times when it feels deep down inside that, that we're alone. We're in a battle that cannot be won. We look around us and figuratively see emptiness. The problem we face is just overwhelming. Perhaps you have a loved one that's facing a medical problem, or maybe more than one. Or maybe you yourself are facing a medical problem. And you're tempted to feel that that's a place where you are all by yourself. But God is there. Perhaps you, teenagers, looking at this crazy, mixed-up world, trying to figure out what is my place in it? How am I ever going to make my way? And is what I'm hearing from my parents true? Is there really a God for me? And you're tempted to feel that you are alone. But God is there. Maybe you're a young mom who's immersed in taking care of children. And yes, they're a blessing and it's a wonderful thing. And you feel like it's never going to end. It's a wilderness of sorts. And yet, God is there. The growing of your faith is learning to see God's presence in the toughest circumstances of life. And so turn toward your wilderness because your God is there. He's present in the toughest moments you will ever face. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18 says this, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That is how to grow faith. Don't be fooled by what you see because it's transient. It will change. It's fading away. The unseen, why that's more real and more solid because that's the world that we eagerly await. But it takes practice. It takes some work. Learning to trust when you can't see. A lifetime might not be long enough. Jesus put it this way. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Our hearts will be with our treasure. So consider carefully, Cedar Home, what you treasure. 
because it has huge impacts on the growth of faith. Well, let's go back to the wilderness. There are the people of Israel having just been told that there will be meat to eat at twilight and bread to the full in the morning. Now, I wonder what that afternoon was like. Remember, they didn't have a PA in a system, so if you're going to announce something to two and a half million people, it's gonna take some time for that message to get to everybody. And then, as evening comes, it says that quail came up and covered the camp. Now, I know that you living here know kind of what that looks like because you've seen the snow geese, those clouds of white as they fly over the fields. I can only imagine the cacophony, I love that word, the cacophony and hubbub it would be as hundreds and thousands of quail descend upon the camp as the people scurry to collect them and to prepare themselves a meal that they didn't expect. And then the passage doesn't say anything more about that. It goes right to the morning. And all around the camp is this fine, flaky substance. It says that it, it kind of came with the dew. And as they come out to observe it, they see this on the ground, and in Hebrew they say, manhu, which becomes the word manna, because manhu means what is it? And so what is it is the name of what is it? And their direction is, is that they are to gather an omer for each person that lives in the tent with them. And the passage at the very end tells us that an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. So this afternoon, go home and Google these things and you'll find out how much that is. So here comes the part that I like to call fun with math. The first thing that we know is that this manna fell for 40 years. How many days are there in 40 years? Any mathematicians here that can do that that quickly? 14,600, okay, 365 times 40. But wait, 40 years would be 10 leap years, although they didn't have them in their calendars, so it's 14,610 days, okay? Now, if, as I've said, that there are two and a half million persons, then that would be two and a half million omers of manna every day for 14,610 days. Now, multiply two and a half million times 14,610, and you get this number, and I'm gonna do my best to say it right, 365 quadrillion, 250 trillion omers of manna over 40 years. McDonald's would love to say that they sold that many burgers, but they're still only in the billions, half of the number of omers that God provides in 40 years. Now manna has some really interesting properties. 
If you try to store it overnight, it breeds worms and stinks. So I imagine that the people of Israel did that the first time, not necessarily because they were just being bad and obstinate people, but because they were looking at a provision and they were going, I'm gonna make it, I'm gonna take advantage of this. And so when they were told, gather only as much as you need to eat, they went, yeah, okay, well that's for the other guy. I'm gonna take as much as I can get. And so in the morning when it bred worms and stank, what would you do? Yeah, I think you'd do exactly the same thing. You'd try it again. Just in case you maybe had something wrong with the container that you put it in. And then it breeds worms and stinks again. And after an experiment of about a week, you might start to believe, okay, I guess, I guess what he told me is right. Now, here's the funny part. If you store it overnight on the sixth day, then it doesn't breed worms and stink. And if you go out on the seventh day to gather, it won't be there. If you sleep in, and head out in the late morning to gather, it will be gone because it melts in the sun. This stuff can be ground in a pestle, it can be boiled, it can be baked, it can be made into cakes. The description is is that it has the sweetness of honey and the cakes made out of it taste like cakes made with oil. It descends like dew on the ground. Now here, that was a problematic part for me as I tried to figure out what would that look like? Because what's in the desert? Sand. And if this stuff descends on everything, then you would have to be really careful how you scooped it up. Or you'd have to come up with some way to filter it or you just have to get used to the grit of sand in your food. I I don't know, it doesn't talk about it at all, and yet somehow they figured it out. Now, the interesting thing is that some manna was gathered and placed in a jar for future generations, and it never bred worms and stank, and so our number stops being 365 quadrillion, 250 trillion, it becomes 365 quadrillion, 250 trillion and one. Now the other thing that's interesting is that this was not just in a local spot. Everywhere they went, the manna went with them for 40 years. And what was their response? If you read later on in the book of Numbers, their response is, I'm tired of it. So here in the wilderness, in a place of emptiness and nothingness, a place you would never suspect was a place to eat, it becomes a place where over 365 quadrillion omers of manna becomes commonplace. The lesson is is that it's renewed every morning. It's doubled on the eve of the Sabbath. 
there's no way for them to deny that God is with them. It's there every day, sustaining them. You see, manna is never described as having been derived from something. Now, there are some commentators, when you read them, that say that there's the tamarisk tree and there are these bugs that will eat the sap of the tree and then they secrete this white sugary substance and that's probably what the people of Israel gathered. And I think there are 365 quadrillion, 250 trillion reasons why that's nonsense. It's created out of nothing. It is a miracle of God every day for 40 years. And yet they grow tired of this miracle. And that shows the faith problem that they had. Because they're deep in the middle of learning to trust and to know this God. Our problems as people are real and they can be frightening and they can be overwhelming. But only as we actively grow in our faith, laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven, knowing that our heart will be where our treasure is, learning to discern what is real and what is transient and fading away. Only when we do those things will our problems become the point at which we turn and see God waiting for us there. May each of us encourage one another in this daily walk on our journey of faith together, and may we never grow tired of it. Will you stand with me as we have the benediction? Now may the God of peace, who brought, you up from, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Cedar Home, you are dismissed.